Welcome to Banking in the Shadows, a podcast that shines a spotlight on the worlds of financial and cybercrime, how it impacts the global financial system, and the people, organizations, and agencies tasked with fighting it. Hi, I'm Anita Horser, Europe Editor at The Banker. This episode of Banking in the Shadows was recorded at the EBRD's annual meeting in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, where I spoke with the Development Bank's Chief Compliance Officer, John Mayer, who advises management committees and the EBRD board on investment-related integrity matters. He is also the EBRD's head of mission at the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global watchdog on anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. John provides an interesting perspective on how compliance works within a multilateral development bank compared to a commercial bank, where he has also worked as a financial crime director. I started by asking him what a typical day looks like. The area really focuses on reputation, risk, and the bank's exposure to whatever it might get involved in or or might not get involved in. That really splits out into elements of um, advising on projects, uh, advising the management of the bank, the board of the bank, um, on the merits of different projects from a reputation uh, and exposure point of view. Um, But also it's the whole business of conduct, which would be the business of conduct of staff and officials of the bank, but also conduct of clients or potential clients of the bank to make sure that we understand what we might be getting involved in before we get involved in it. And if we're involved, uh, then the conduct relates to uh, potentially investigating things which might give us cause for concern, but we try to keep that to a minimum. And I know that you have worked in in sort of commercial banks uh, in similar roles. Just wondering, I mean, how does it compare being a chief compliance officer for a multilateral development bank compared to, say, a commercial bank? And also, given that the EBRD is in more than almost 40 countries? Um, I think how it compares depends quite a lot on who's doing the job and what the values of the institution are, uh, you know, the respective institutions. When I was in the regulated sector, I found there was quite a temptation and a drive to try to satisfy the regulator as being the key focus. Uh, We in the EBRD are not regulated formally. Uh, We are, of course, regulated in the sense that we are exposed to public opinion and the media, and arguably that's a very, very high bar to meet. So I would say that my own approach does not differ in the EBRD from how I used to work when I was in the regulated sector, but I, it's possible that uh, there are significant differences in the way people in the regulated sector go about their work compared to the way I go about my work. Yes, in the regulated sector, there's a lot of transaction monitoring, there's a lot of suspicious activity reporting, some banks obviously complaining about the level of SARS and some of those SARS being defensive in the sense that the banks may feel that there is something happening but they're not quite sure, so they report anyway. Do you have those kind of considerations? 
Well, we do have the same considerations, but really not in the same way. Arguably, the EBRD is hardly a bank. Um, we don't have any customer deposits. Uh, clients cannot transact by their own decision. They can only transact because we agree to do a project or we uh, conduct a treasury operation because they, uh, the, the client wants us to hedge something and so we might do that and we hedge our own exposures. But we don't have um, customer deposits and we don't have client accounts as such. You know, we do call it 400, 450 projects a year. Uh, which is a very, very small number of projects, even though some of them might be large and, and quite exposed. You know, that's a very different level from a large investment bank or a commercial bank. I mean, when I was in the commercial banking world, I think we had probably 30 million transactions a day. Uh, we had 30 or 40 million customers. Uh, in the EBRD, we don't have those sorts of numbers. So in that sense, our exposures are very different. So when the EBRD is looking to invest in a particular country, what role would you play in that? Um, well, we, we are the, if you like, spiritual leaders of integrity and uh, reputation, risk and, and conscience overseers in the bank. So we set the standards. Uh, we establish some procedures, but uh, because of our nature, we don't have many, many procedures the way a, you know, a very large bank would have, with, which has thousands of, or tens of thousands of staff. You know, we have a much smaller number of staff. Um, and we put a lot of importance on what the front line are doing. Now, the front line know the clients, they know the locality. We have resident offices in all the countries we're active in. Uh, so there's a lot of intelligence and knowledge that comes through that. Also, sector teams who are very specialised on particular sectors they have access to, uh, through a, a couple of units we have, to databases which provide information uh, in relation to politically exposed persons, adverse media, uh, media in general, sanctions. And, and so they themselves don't do that work. That's done by someone else. But all of the information ends up with the front line. Now, our role is to make sure that that's all working well and also to advise the front line when they come across situations which they decide are uh, matters which need deeper analysis. Um, we might do that analysis ourselves, they might do it, we might encourage them in a certain direction. Um, and at the end of the day, we provide an opinion to the investment committee of the bank, which we call the operations committee, and to the board. Um, and it's probably fair to say that if we're advising something not to be a good idea, uh, you know, that will be a very heavy weight on the decision. But the decision is taken ultimately by the board and not by me and my unit. How does that sort of sit with you as a sort of chief compliance officer? Because in commercial banks, there's always this tension, I think, between sales and compliance, or at least there has been historically. And I've even had some compliance people say they were the most unpopular person <laughs> in the bank. How, I, I wonder how you're perceived within the EBRD. That would be a question to ask of others, probably. Um, I'd like to think that I'm perceived as a respectable uh, professional, um, 
Doubtless there are some people who like me more than others. And I think actually in this role, and probably this is exactly the same in any other compliance role where uh, the, the role has a degree of power and the institution takes that role seriously. Uh, you know, I think if one wants to be popular, this isn't the field to be in. Uh, because there will be times when um, we make recommendations which are very unpopular because they stand in the way of an otherwise very good project, for example. But if that project is involving people with whom we think the bank shouldn't be involved, uh, it's probably better for the bank and its mission that we turn down the very good project in favour of uh, trying to keep the bank's reputation. And, and that's actually taken very, very seriously within the EBRD and by the shareholder countries. And since you've been in this role, have you had to turn down many projects? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we spend a lot of time engaging with the front line and we run trainings and skills-based trainings, which are all designed to help the first line not waste time on projects which ultimately are not going to be successful from an integrity or reputation point of view. But it is right that teams, when they have a good project, um, test the water with us as to whether something which is grey is, is light grey or dark grey. Um, and if it's you know, dark grey bordering on black, uh, it could well be that uh, we decide that you know, that's not a project that, that we think we can support. And that happens. But we try to ensure that we're working with the front lines such that they are really very good at deciding just how many matters to bring to us um, rather than trying to do everything and having us creating a lot of tension by turning things down. I think it's also important to say that what comes to us is not merely the decision of the front line. We have certain mandatory criteria which mean that if a project involves a particular sector or a particular place or has particular features, then it has to come to us and we get involved in those. But other than that, uh, we really do want the first line to be very prominent in being the first step in deciding whether a project is worth spending time on or not. And that's kind of a nice segue into my next question. Um, what happens if one of the countries the EBRD is looking to invest in is grey-listed by FATF? How do you respond to that? Well, a country which is grey-listed is, is really just the FATF making the point that there are reasons to have concerns about certain features of that or those countries. The FATF is not saying these are not countries which you should be working in. Um, and I think we're going to talk later about de-risking. So I think it's very important that we take into account information and intelligence that we have, but we don't have a knee-jerk reaction to just run away from a country that might be grey-listed. I mean, after all, there are excellent companies and excellent people in countries which are grey-listed, and there's some pretty nasty people uh, and pretty nasty companies in countries which are not grey-listed. So I think I, I myself am very respectful of the process of grey-listing, um, you know, partly because we're an observer member uh, of the FATF ourselves, 
but I wouldn't be one of those who ran fast in the opposite direction just because a project involved a particular country. I want to move on now because the big topic here at the annual meeting is the war in Ukraine. And we're here in Central Asia, obviously, for the EBRD's meeting. And this region has seen huge inflows of Russian capital and companies since the war began. It also plays a very important role in intermediating trade between Western Europe and Russia. So I'm just sort of wanting to get an idea, perhaps, of how the EBRD's monitoring of the region has been impacted by the war. We need to, on the one hand, make sure we understand what our position is in relation to the what we have described as, what I would describe as aggressors. Um, but we also need to be measured in how we react to the effect of Russia's engagement in war uh, with the economies of the countries which are adjacent or further away from Russia. Um, and what we don't want to do is see an unnecessary level of damage caused to peoples and countries um, adjacent to Russia or involved in Russia. That said, we also want to make sure that we're not involved in projects which seem to give advantage uh, to Russia. And at that point, I have to say, you know, there is a difference between Russia and Russians, and we want to try to make sure that, on the one hand, we take a robust stance in relation to the initiative that, that Russia took, but on the other hand, don't um, take it that every Russian should be punished uh, by cutting them off from a, a, you know, a measured and, a, and moderate livelihood. Um, that said, uh, the governors of the bank decided to uh, make sure that we got out of Russia and Belarus. Uh, since 2014, we haven't been investing uh, new money in Russia and Belarus, but uh, actually a year ago we decided we were going to get out. Uh, and that's something that we're doing in a resolute manner, but it's not easy, partly because if we get out fast uh, with no consideration at all to value, it means that we're potentially gifting uh, assets to Russia which might actually not be in our best interests either. So it's a very tricky topic. And it must be difficult to strike a balance between supporting the projects you already have invested in but then also trying not to provide support to Russia. Can you talk about that delicate balance you need to strike? Well, I think the... the the key thing that we think about in that situation is when we're taking a decision or making a recommendation, we should try to make the best recommendation or take the right decision. But we should immediately, just prior to taking that decision, assume that our decision is wrong and it's proven to be wrong in the future and know now what we would say to people in the future about that decision. And I think that's the closest we can get to giving ourselves comfort that we are satisfied that we've done the best we can to make the right decision, even though it could be that we turn out to have made the wrong decision. I mean, so far, 
but time will tell because some, some of these decisions take a long time to play through. Uh, so far, we feel that our decisions have been you know, good in, in a humble sort of way. Uh, but one of the things about this job is that we're always taking decisions whose consequences are not readily observable in the short term. And so we've got to be ready to answer reasonable questions in the future um, should they need to arise. And there are obviously very widely publicised concerns about sanctioned products finding their way to Russia via neighbouring sort of countries. Do you, does the EBRD share these concerns and, and how are you responding to them? Yeah, we definitely share these concerns and, and we read about them and hear about them. Um, what we do, well, what we focus most strongly on trying to get the decision right whether to get involved in a company or not before we get involved. Uh, because our experience would tell us, I mean, not necessarily the experience of the EBRD, but our professional experience that we each bring uh, into our roles, uh, tells us that once one is faced with a problem of having engaged with the wrong activity, it's actually extremely difficult to unwind that going forward and it's and it's impossible to unwind that historically so we take a great deal of care of what we get involved in now people who try to evade sanctions be it financial or with product are normally very very clever uh, it's it's very easy to detect people who are doing it in a very um, obvious manner and are not very sophisticated but people who are very sophisticated, you know, it's really very difficult to work out what's going on. And there, I think, we just need to make sure that we don't rely on proof of what we understand, but we rely on suspicion of what we understand. And we use the measure of suspicion uh, to guide us as to whether we would like to be involved in something or get involved in something, not the measure of evidence. Um, and I think uh, if there is a small number of words that one should be very cautious about, it's no tangible evidence. You know, if anyone ever says there's no tangible evidence, I'm immediately thinking, well, how much intangible evidence is there? And forget about evidence. Is there any information? Is there anything you think I would like to know? And, and one has to make sure the questions are sufficiently broad. That's not easy for us, but it's easier for us than if we had 30 million customers. And I think this is where you have really quite a challenge for a commercial sector bank uh, versus a bank like our own. So does that mean you're having to have sort of conversations with, you know, particular parties that you work with in these countries regarding sanctions and whether, you know, they're hearing anything about potential sanctions evasion? We yeah, so we do have those conversations. We've actually, we, we're very sensitive to international sanctions, uh, but we've never actually thought of as sanction names as being the decisive factor as to whether we might engage in something or not. Um, if we had decided to use sanction names as the way in which to avoid getting involved in things, we would have found ourselves probably involved, given that we were very active in Russia and uh, still are active in Ukraine and, and, and many other countries, we would probably have found ourselves with many names which were not sanctioned, but which today are. 
And once one has a situation with a sanctioned individual, it's actually very, very complicated to try to unwind or resolve it. It's not so difficult if we're exposed to something which is 100% owned by a sanctioned individual, then that's all very obvious. But what happens if a company is owned 40% by a sanctioned individual, or 20%, or 5%, or 3%, and then who is the sanctioned individual? Uh, you know, and 1% with one individual might be an awful lot worse than 45% with another individual. So it is a very, very complex area. And obviously, historically, there's been huge fines against commercial banks for sanctions, non-compliance. Sort of EBRD subject to the same sort of level of compliance with sanctions as a commercial bank would be. Well, as I mentioned before, we're not formally regulated, but we are regulated, if you like, by our own reputation. And that might mean that we're perhaps even more sensitive uh, to these matters than regulated entities. Not because regulated entities wouldn't care about their reputation, but because we have no way of blaming a regulation for saying, well, we did what the regulation said, so don't blame us for having missed whatever. Um, I'm not suggesting that the commercial banks use that, but, but you know, it's a sort of line of thinking that I have heard discussed. So we're most certainly very, very focused um, on the sensitivities of sanctions, bearing in mind, though, that we are subject uh, legally to the UN sanctions, but we're not legally subject in our own activity to the national sanctions. That said, uh, the fact that we have major shareholders uh, who are very active in the sanctioning world uh, mean that we need to be sensitive to um, sanctions by um, countries. And in fact, you know, we, d we don't apply those to ourselves because we, we are a multilateral institution and we need to be careful about just saying, yes, we will um, respect the sanction of any shareholder country and we've got a very wide range of shareholder countries, uh, but we are very, very cautious about proceeding with anything uh, where a shareholder has a very strong view that it would be unhelpful for them if we did. Let's move on a little bit. We, we touched on de-risking earlier, a very sort of ongoing topic um, in this space. I want to get a sense of how big a problem de-risking is in the regions that EBRD does business in. I think it is a major problem, um, but it's not something that I've seen which has severely damaged the economies of uh, countries. And, and how do I square major problem versus not severely damaging? Um, De-risking has an impact on banks, which ultimately may have an impact on citizens. Uh, it, ca it can also mean that uh, certain types of financial activity become concentrated in a small number of institutions, which then makes the system um, more unstable if one of those institutions were to get into trouble. So it is a serious problem, uh, but I think on the, on the big picture, the countries seem to have been able to deal with it. Um, that said, it would be better if it weren't happening, notwithstanding one's understanding of why it is happening, um, because it would be better if uh, 
citizens and economies had a broader base of financial institutions upon which they could rely as viable partners. And what is the EBRD doing specifically to try and minimise the impact of de-risking on the countries you invest in? Is there anything you can do? Well, it's very hard for us to vouch for um, financial institutions because if we vouch for one financial institution but we don't vouch for 10 others in a country, uh, it sets a very unbalanced picture uh, and there are grey areas. So we, we tend not to um, be at all public about our view of a particular sector and particular players. What we are heavily involved in is in capacity building, um, both on anti-corruption and on financial crime in general. And what we're keen to do and what we have been doing on the de-risking front is trying to make sure that small banks in remote locations which speak a different language from their major correspondent uh, in a very different time zone really take it upon themselves to be understood by that global correspondent bank. Um, because if they're not understood, they're going to be the ones which suffer. Uh, and I'm not sure that the degree of interaction and understanding was much focused on uh, soon enough. Uh, and in all relationships, you know, if you haven't got good reason to trust a relationship and you're being very closely looked at by opinion uh, makers, be it the media or regulators or politicians or whoever, um, you know, you, you're, you're, you're likely to be in an uncomfortable position. When we were sort of talking earlier, you sort of mentioned that perhaps, you know, the whole system needs to be looked at in terms of financial crime. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Well, we're an observer member of the FATF. We, I, I've spent the last probably 20, 15, 20 years quite focused on, on aspects of financial crime. Although when I was more in the banking uh, frontline role, uh, you know, doing good banking necessarily involved understanding what sort of business one was doing. Um, but I think that it might be helpful to in no way reduce the focus on financial crime and the work that the FATF and, and countries are doing, but at the same time as looking to strengthen what we're doing, also be able to think about whether the strategy is right. Um, and one element of this, I think, is that we are very all, we're all very public about how keen we are to stop financial crime. And everybody knows that finance, financial institutions make suspicious activity reports, including the criminals. Arguably, it would be more helpful if, if all of that were not so public and things were done in a much quieter way because that would perhaps enable um, one to have strategies which are a little more discreet and might be better at finding out what people are really up to rather than telling everyone precisely what we're looking for, which enables them to dress up as sheep uh, rather than looking like wolves. And in my experience, uh, there have been notable successes, but I think a lot of what is simple and pedestrian gets seen, and maybe a lot of what is sophisticated and complex doesn't get seen. And I think that's where the real challenge is.
just looking ahead to the future, because there's a lot of talk about perhaps future developments in fighting financial crime and perhaps how te certain technologies such as artificial intelligence perhaps could play. Do you think there's any sort of developments on the horizon that could really help in this respect? Uh, in respect of financial crime, uh, I think that there is probably a lot of potential to do what I haven't seen done very much, which is to combine risk management with uh, business management in the sense that, to my understanding, good customer relationship management is very much, uh, is very, very close to looking at risk management. You know, if you, if you understand transactions, you can see what your customer or client might need. If you understand transactions, you can see what transactions you might wish you weren't seeing. Uh, in my experience, these things are handled rather separately. And potentially, there's a duplication of budget there. Different systems doing similar things. Uh, it's, it's easy to say that, but it's actually then difficult to re-engineer the systems. Um, secondly, I think probably there's a, 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 an increasing use of data, yes, is, is likely to be very helpful. I think we should be careful about thinking our data searching and our artificial intelligence is extremely intelligent because the human mind, which is trying to defeat the system, it, you know, has elements which are also extremely intelligent. Uh, and I actually think in combination with data and, and, and digitalization, we must make sure we don't subordinate human mind to counter human mind by giving one side of that equation to a computer. I mean, it could be that there are things there which can be done better than the human, but there are a few things probably that humans uh, are still doing better than machines, uh, and that might go on for some time yet. So I do not think it's wise to put many, or certainly not all of the eggs, in the digital basket. So, I mean, is the EBRD leveraging any of these new, new digital technologies? Well, we, we, we are actually currently looking to see whether we are using the right technology for our purpose. But as I mentioned before, our challenge is really quite different from the challenge of most of the financial sector. Uh, most of the financial sector needs not only to understand who it's working with, but also what the companies and the people are up to through their transactions. We, we need to understand that too, but we're not seeing those transactions through the EBRD. So, so our focus uh, tends to be a little bit different, but we do need to make sure we're not caught out, especially caught out in a way which people might subsequently later say, well, that was pretty stupid, wasn't it? Why didn't you do X, Y, Z? So we're always trying to think ahead, but uh, we know that we're not perfect. And if ever one day uh, we're in one of your publications for something which we'd rather not have been involved in, I think the key thing that we want to make sure people understand is how hard we've worked to avoid that. Uh, but we can't tell anyone that that will never happen. John, well, look, thank you so much for giving us that sort of very interesting and in-depth insight into your, your role as a Chief Compliance Officer at the EBRD. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Banking in the Shadows. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Banking in the Shadows. 
a monthly podcast available from thebanker.com, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.